family. Thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. I'm Pastor Ryan Gagnon. We're going to be hearing today from Patrick Fox as he continues our series, The Test, a study in the book of James. We have prayed about how best to meet our community with the gospel message of Jesus. We believe this digital component is a way of meeting our community here on the web. We hope God uses it to encourage and challenge you. We also encourage you to serve a local church body. Remember, you can't be the church by yourself. Have you ever watched a courthouse drama like Law & Order? There are something like 287 different versions of it on television at any given time, so I bet you probably have. The prosecutor and the defense each submit evidence to make their case. Why does the jury need to see the evidence? Why is it formally presented in the court in the first place? It proves to them what the facts are about the case. They then make a determination based on the evidence. So what on earth does that have to do with a walk with Jesus? Great question. We will study in the next few moments what genuine faith looks like. God has challenged us through the book of James to have a faith that is active. Does our faith, in fact, pass the test? The action of that faith is evidenced through how we view people and God's word and how do we interact with them. Look for James to use real-life examples this week that will hit home for most of us. We will learn this morning that genuine faith will make us see people and wisdom differently. Let's listen in together. A genuine faith will make us see people and wisdom differently. So the book of James is uh, one of those books for me that really has always had a really kind of impact in my life. How many of you guys remember the first book of the Bible you ever read? Some of us? Okay. That's okay. Um, For me, that was the book of James. I grew up kind of in the church. Um, I was in the church starting in middle school um, with my, I have an identical twin brother. And so we went to church. That's what we did. Um, Sunday, Wednesday, we were in church. And one of the things that um, I really appreciated about it was the fellowship, the community. Um, You really felt loved there. And I think that's really kind of the point. Jesus says, you'll know that they are my disciples by your love for one another. And so um, as we open up the book of James, it's it's one of those books that just has such wisdom in it. Uh, James doesn't pull any punches. He uses a lot of imagery, which is great for a simple person like me, because whenever I read something, I'm already picturing in my head kind of like ideas of that. And one of the images I I love for the book of James is the idea of a sailboat. Because what James talks about a lot here in, in, in this book is this idea of genuine faith. And so a sailboat, very much like uh, a lot of other things, is you can do a lot of things to help move the boat along, right? You can, you can steer it, you can direct it, you can guide it, you can have all the right things that you need for it. But what do you need for the sailboat to drive? Wind, right? You can't create wind. Um, I mean, you can make big, huge things like that and like fans or whatever, but you need the wind to push it. And I think that's really what James gets to in this book is that we need the Holy Spirit filling us kind of like a glove um, to push us along. 
And so when he talks about this idea of genuine faith, he's speaking to Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. They're all over the place because of persecution. And what James really is going to get the point to them is that these guys are getting pounded from each and every side. They're Jewish believers, so they're Jewish brethren, don't want anything to do with them. The world doesn't want anything to do with them because they're Christians. And so they're in a hard place. They're stuck. And what James calls to them to do is to live out their faith. And so in chapter 1, he talks about trials. He talks about temptations. What does it look like for a believer to face those things? Because the key is, it should look different for a believer and a non-believer. Because we have this hope. We have this, 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 this uh, spirit living inside of us that's going to help get us through these things. Um, and so the, the cool thing about James is he died a martyr's death in about 62 AD. Um, the, this book's written from about 44 to 48. Um, and so what he's going to address here in chapter 2 are really kind of two separate things, um, but two things that kind of go hand in hand. They're two uh, things that kind of run the same theme throughout. And so what I want us to look at this morning is, is that a genuine faith will make us see people and wisdom differently. Um, and... That's something that I've been wrestling with as I wrestle. I've probably taught through this passage multiple times, probably like four or five times. Um, and every time I really dive into it, it hits me differently and it really convicts me um, because I think we could all do a better job about this right here. So um, as we get started, let me go ahead and just read the chapter and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit. Um, this is James 2, starting in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and then you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You also believe and shudder. Oh, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But, you, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? 
Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So this is a pretty big chapter. There's a lot going on here. And, and really what I did was I kind of broke it up into two different sections. And I could spend a lot of time in both of these sections. I could probably do a sermon on both sections. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to take a look and see the first real main point here is that genuine faith causes us to see past the exterior and see people the way God sees them. And so I came up with this illustration kind of like, you know, I'm not fantastic at illustrations. Um, but I just felt like as I kind of wrestled with this piece of scripture, I feel like this is a lot of times what we do. A lot of times we look at somebody who's kind of beaten up, kind of downtrodden, and a lot of the times the first thought that we have is, well, what did they do to get there? How did they screw up their life? And we kind of look down on them and we're, we, we get frustrated. And so then we see somebody who's, who's clean and tidy and neat and say, they've got their life together. And God doesn't see it that way. God doesn't look at the exterior. And, and so the first point that I want to really talk about is that looks can be deceiving. Right? If somebody is to walk in here kind of disheveled and kind of beaten down and downtrodden, I, knowing the guys and knowing the team here, I know that they would be drawn to them. I know that they would be talking to them, asking them questions, you know, encouraging them. And so what we need to do is, is that. We need to show the love of Christ. And so in, in these verses, um, we need to be careful. We need to be careful about uh, trusting appearances and just kind of assuming things about other people. Uh, what James does is he paints this picture of two guys coming into church. One's decked out in the nicest clothes. They have a tie on. Um, they have really expensive shoes. They've got the gold ring. They've got all the bling. They've got everything decked out to the nines. And what are they doing in this church? They're, they see this guy and they're like, man, he must have money. So what are we going to do? We're going to take him. Sir, come up here. Come up here. You have a seat in the front row. We're going to give you the best seat. Although a lot of times nowadays everybody wants to sit in the back. Um, but but we, you come up. Have a front row seat. You'll be able to hear everything. You'll, you'll, you'll get eye contact. All of these things. We want you here. And then he paints the, the other picture and he says, well, here comes another guy who's down on his luck, dirty. Um, some of the, the actual wording here in the text actually speaks of uh, like feces and excrement. It's, he's really not looking good. He looks like he just rolled off of the street, rolled out of uh, sleeping under a tree. And what do they do to this guy? They say, wherever you go, just go to the back. We don't want you. We don't want our church to be associated with you. you we don't want you up front. And so with their motives behind it, obviously are, well, if we get in good with this rich guy, he's going to give us money. And, and so um, what God makes the, or what James makes the argument for is say, he says, that's not what the church is supposed to be at all. This kind of eliteness, this kind of favoritism really has no place in the church. Being a Christian is being a follower of Christ and to be as much, be like Christ as much as possible. And this sounds absolutely nothing like Christ. How was Jesus born into this world? 
super humble, right? Luke 2, 3 through 10 says this, And everyone was on their way to register for the census, each to their own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and he said, and laid him in a manger. And really what it is is kind of like a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus didn't come on the scene with all the fancy things, all the, the best things of life. Could he have? Absolutely. He's God. He could have came into a, a really rich family and had to and got to live like the luxurious life where mommy and daddy pay for everything and everything's good and great. But that's not how God comes in. God comes in humble, simple. And so then he grows up in Nazareth, and, and it was a place that was so looked down upon. It was a one-stoplight town that's blinking yellow the whole time. There's no stop signs. It's, it's podunk, right? And people would say of Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It would be the place that you'd get gas before you stopped there. And all through his ministry, he was homeless. But the one thing about Jesus, he ministered to everybody showing no favoritism. It didn't matter if you were a tax collector, a prostitute, a Roman soldier, a Samaritan, a woman, a Samaritan woman, blind, sick, poor, short, uh, dead, whatever it was, Jesus said, bring them on. And so to the powerful and to the powerless, he, he reached them. He went to them. And so Jesus was the friend of sinners. And that's every one of us in here. And so that's one of the one of the reasons that he, he talks about here is that there are these religious or these rich people. They were the ones that were literally bringing him, them into court, suing them, and taking all their money. And says, "You are going to these people and sitting them up front. What what is the, where is the disconnect here? They have nothing positive for you. You guys are looking at the exterior, but what God looks at is the heart. And so." It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love for you and me. And when he died, he died with the sins of all the world, dying a death that we deserve. And, and for us to then turn around and say, well, I like this person for their money or I get along with this person. How many of us in here have people at work that we just don't get along with or at school or wherever we do? How many do we just, we, there's people that we just have friction with, right? Amen? Right, exactly. It's all of us. It's difficult. When you deal with people, it's hard. When I got into ministry, I was like, I used to work at a dental office, um, and so that was difficult because, you know, you deal with people's insurance, and then it doesn't pay the right way, and then, you know, I was like, man, ministry will be so much easier. Boy, was I wrong. Because ministry, you deal with all kinds of different people. You deal with all kinds of different problems. Fortunately, at the dental office, most of the problems, I knew what I was going to encounter. Why didn't this pay this? Why didn't this do this? And I could have an answer for him, or I could find the answer. In ministry, you never know what's going to walk in the door. You never know what somebody's dealing with or having trouble with. And so even the apostles fell into this argument of, of who was the best. And what did Jesus do? He's sitting in the upper room, and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And he says, I want you guys to love each other like I've loved you. And man, I don't know about you, but that's humbling because I know for a fact that this week, this month, 
my entire life, there's been people in my life that God's been calling me to love and I've given the cold shoulder. And I've given my A game, if you will, to people who I think can, can offer me something. And Jesus says, there's no, or James and Jesus say, there's no place for that here in the church. And so we see in verses five through seven, James says, here you guys think that you can tell what, uh, by what they look like if they're rich or poor, but appearances are deceptive. God focuses on the heart, but we focus on external. Uh, there's a story in, in 1 Samuel 16, and this is when Samuel, Saul has lost the favor of God, and God goes to Samuel and says, go to the house of Jesse and, and find the next king. And he says, okay, God, no problem. And he walks inside, and Jesse's got all of his sons, right? And what's his first son? The oldest son he brings out. Guy looks like a tight end, right? Looks like J.J. Watt. Huge, jacked guy. And what does Samuel say? This must be the guy that God has for us. This is the, he's similar to Saul, but he's better. And, he, and this has to be the guy. And God says no. He's like, okay, okay, good. Yeah, that's fine. So he goes down the line. And his next son, you know, he's a little bit smaller, but still a good looking guy. No, no, no. And then there's nobody left. And so Samuel says, there's got to be somebody else, right? Do you have anybody else? I don't care. Anybody that's even related to you. And he says, well, yeah, there's David, this guy who's out taking care of the sheep. And he says, bring him in. See, even Samuel, a man of God who had been through this before, fell into this trap. Looking at the appearance, looking at what we can see with our eyes. And God says, no, 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 no. I use the weak things of this world. How cool is it that we serve a God that loves to flex his muscles? He puts, he stacks the deck against himself so much. And we see that in David's life, right? David versus Goliath. God says, oh yeah, you don't think anybody can beat this guy? Let me use this little shepherd boy with just a slingshot. And I'll show up mightily. I think of Elijah's life when he's, he's, he's standing up for God and he, he calls down fire. He's, he prays a simple prayer while these other prophets are cutting themselves. They're doing all these crazy things. And he says, that's not enough. Douse it with water. Make it so it's unlightable. And then I'm going to show up. We serve an amazing God. And it's not, we, we need to get off the page of what we see. And we need to really just love people. We need to see them as God sees them. And so I, the next thing that I see here is not only do we need to do it because we're called to love other people, but James also says it's sin, right? And so I, I found this picture and I, I kind of felt convicted. You know, I mean, I teach youth. Um, and so this happens a lot. There's cliques. Right? I mean, it happens in everywhere. Church, work, where, wherever it is, there becomes these cliques. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's going to be people that you mesh with better than others. But when it becomes favoritism, that's when it, when it, it, it kind of goes off the, the uh, railing. Um, Abraham Lincoln said, God must love common people because he made so many of them. Guys, every person has value. If you're a believer, Christ lives in them. And if you're an unbeliever, Christ died for them. And so James is writing to these Jews who were saved and prided themselves on keeping God's commandment. And so what James is saying here is that you guys don't think it's a big deal, but in the eyes of God, it's the same as breaking every single commandment. We think that telling a little white lie is not a big deal. We think we, we, we try to belittle sin. And what God says is it's a big deal. 
the small things are a big deal to me because I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And so James calls him on the carpet. He says, you guys think it's not a big deal because you guys are trying to get money for the church. You're trying to do this or you think you have right motives for it. But that's not what I've called you to do. And what James says is, look at the law in its whole unit. So if you're guilty of murder and haven't committed adultery, you can say, well, I'm not an adulterer. Yeah, but you're a murderer and you're still guilty. You violated the law. And so when we look at prejudice and discrimination, we tend to look at it as kind of like jaywalking. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's really not hurting anybody. Um, and we see in, in verses uh, 12 and 13, um, I just want to read those again. It says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is mercy? What is this idea of mercy? I'm kind of interactive, so yeah, this is like kind of like a callback. You guys, you guys answer the question. What, what's mercy? You're driving down the road. You're speeding. You get pulled over. You did something wrong. You know you were going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. The cop pulls you over. What's mercy in that situation? It gives you a warning, right? Hallelujah. Amen. Because that ticket's going to be hefty. When we get mercy, we really love it, right? We really enjoy when you get mercy. Uh, we went to Momentum. It's our youth conference. And we left at 3 a.m. from the Grace Church. We get into Avon Park, which is like 15 minutes. And we see lights. We're driving in this big 15-passenger van. We have nine things of luggage on the back and then some in the van. And we've got them strapped down with ratchet straps. And we get pulled over at 3 a.m in Avon Park, and we're like, what could this possibly be? So we pull off in, into the gas station, and, you know, he kind of shines the light. It's 3 a.m. I mean, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and so he looks in, and he sees all of us, and Pastor Matt's driving, and he says, uh, you know, he's like, you know, do you know, do you know why I pulled you over? And he says, no, we had a headlight out. And he said, you know, we're just trying to get to the airport to get these guys. And again, he, he also said that, you know, our luggage was stacked so high he couldn't see the license plate, which is also illegal, by the way, uh, just for fun stuff. Um, and, but what he did, 10 minutes, 10, probably five, he let us go. He's like, you know, just get it fixed. You know, hopefully you make it there on time. He showed us mercy. Were we doing something wrong? Yes. There was wrongdoing there, but he showed us mercy. And how much do we love it in that moment? Because I know me, whenever I get pulled over, my hand's shaking, you know, am I going to get a ticket? And then when he doesn't, it, it's kind of amazing. Guys, showing mercy is evidence that you really have surrendered your heart to Christ and that you are grasping the amazing mercy that he has shown to you because you get that no better than anyone else. And you want to show the mercy because you've been shown mercy. And what James is saying here is, is, if that's your heart, if that's what's going on, then you know Christ is in you. And when you know Christ is in you, you never have to worry about standing before God and being judged for your sin. You think getting out of a ticket is great? Wait till the end, end of time and you're standing in front of the ultimate judge and he says, well done, my faithful servant. Oh, you think that's going to be, uh, you think a ticket's great? That's going to be amazing. That's going to be humbling. And so here's the thing, guys. We need to get out of our safe circles. We need to stop judging books by their covers. We need to really wrestle with the hardness of our hearts and being willing to let the Holy Spirit work on us, even when we don't think it's a big deal. Because guess what? God says it is. He takes sin seriously, and the most loving thing that we can do is love everyone for the way God sees them 
and that's as a child of God. And so we get to this next section. And this is genuine faith will cause us to understand his word and live it out. This next section is one of the most debated, like confusing, frustrating pieces of scripture for theologians. Martin Luther said that he wanted the book of James ripped out of the Bible because he said, this doesn't go with the Bible. Crazy stuff. Martin Luther, good guy. Like, you know, good guy. He had some sound doctrine. But it's confusing. It's hard. But fortunately, God's, God does a really good work in us to help us explain it. So let me go ahead and read this section again, and then we'll kind of break it down. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the, their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, I know what you're thinking, because what's Paul say? You're saved by what? By grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast, right? Seems like there's a contradiction here. And if you have some smart atheist friends, they're going to point to things like this. They're going to pull this out and say, your Bible contradicts itself because James and Paul are saying two different things. This can't work together. And what Paul's, or what, what James is really getting at is the first thing I see here is he's talking about this dead faith is useless. What is he talking about? Faith, uh, this picture is actually, I know it's kind of hard to see. It's a useless coffee cup. Why is it a useless coffee cup? And the handle's inside. Why is the handle inside? I don't know. I just typed in useless items, and this is what popped up, and I thought that was a good, because I drink a lot of coffee. Um, and he says, is faith, is knowing Jesus, without it changing your life, changing who you are, changing everything about you, is that a faith that's going to save you? And this is hard stuff. Man, when I was... I, I was thinking of people in my mind and it hit me in the heart this week because this is difficult this is hard stuff because there's so many people who know who Jesus is who say that he's God who identify that Jesus rose from the grave and still miss it by 12 inches from their head to their heart because what, is, what does James say here? he says can that type of faith save you? the faith where we say we love Jesus but your life looks the same as before you knew Jesus. There's no evidence of a changed life. Can that faith save you? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. By saying, I love Jesus, or praying a prayer, or uh, maybe you walk an aisle at a youth conference, that's where I originally, you know, said I dedicated my life to the Lord, but then you go home and nothing changes. James makes the argument that a dead faith doesn't benefit you, doesn't benefit others, and doesn't benefit God. It's useless. It's lip service. And so then he gets to this next section in verse 15 through 16, and it says this. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? 
So he's continuing, right? Because he's talking about these poor people. He's talking about these people of the world that we're supposed to be looking out for, seeing through the exterior, getting to the heart of these people. And he says, if you're walking down the street with a sub in your hand and you see somebody who's hurting, who's in need, and they need something to eat, and you say, all right, cool, well, I'll pray for somebody to come along and help with that need. What good is that? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to belittle the sense of prayer. Prayer is an important part, and I think that's awesome and that's great. And my argument would be, why not supply what that person needs and then also pray with them? We had the opportunity uh, this summer at the youth conference to go out into the city of Indiana, um, or the Indianapolis, primarily the city, downtown. Um, and we got the opportunity to pass out food around town to, to homeless people people who are down on their luck, people who are having difficulties. And man, I'll tell you what, nothing like getting some teenage kids out of their comfort zone. We walked up to one group, um, a group of guys who were, it's 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning and plastered, just drunk, bottle in hand, about this much left. And, you know, they're not, we live in Sebring, Florida, which they're not used to it, you know? And the best thing that we could do, we came up and said, we gave them food, we gave them need, and we said, can we pray for you? And it was, it was, it was crazy because our eyes light up. We got in a circle, we all held hands, and we got a chance to pray with these guys. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what kind of state they were in. I don't know what it permeated, but the fact that we were able to talk to the Lord together and, and just ask Him to just be there and, and just move in their hearts and move in their lives, I don't think that's a small thing. And so what he's saying here is that uh, John says the same thing in in 1 John 3. uh, If all you are doing is giving people empty words and there's no love behind it, no love is going to be, real love is going to be characterized by uh, colliding your words and deeds. And so what James is really making the argument is, is that we don't work for our faith. We work from our faith. And that's an important distinction because there's a, this is such a difficult passage because it hits on both ends of the spectrum. You have people in the church who are giving lip service, who are going through the motions, who are putting on the mask every week, and nothing's really going on in here. They're not meeting with the Lord. They're not having that time. And they're saying, but, but, but God, I love you. I read your, I read your Bible. I keep quiet time. I go to church. I love you, but I'm not going to do what you called me to do. Feed my sheep. No, but I love you. Talk to your neighbor. No, I don't want to do that, but I love you. If you were to talk to your significant other, your loved ones, and you said, I love you, but I'm not going to spend any time with you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. Is that really love? How long is that relationship going to last? It's going to deteriorate, and it's the same thing with us and God. And so only the faith that produces good works saves James doesn't say that words alone don't help a cold and hungry person getting your hands dirty and clothing them and feeding them does. Because that's exactly what Jesus did when we were lost, when we were hurting, when we were hungry. James says it is dead. The idea um, in in the Greek is something that's idle, uh, fruitless. And so this is the first of three times that he uses this expression. He's going to say it again in verse 17, 20, and 26. A dead faith, and this is a scary thing, A dead faith lulls you into a false sense of eternity. 
if you think that you can just go to church and that's going to get you into heaven or get you into heaven, James says, wake up. Guys, the most loving, I, I, I tell this to my youth kids all the time. The most loving thing I can tell you is that if you claim the name of Jesus, but live like you don't know him, you should be scared. You should be nervous about that because it hasn't changed your heart. It's not affecting your life. You need to reevaluate things. And so if faith without works is dead, then my salvation can't be measured simply by words, but how I live my life. We don't work for our faith, but from it, because of what God has done for us, we work out our faith to show him to a lost and hurting world. Real faith is characterized by serving God and serving others. Jesus shows us a uh, contrast of what a living faith looks like. Living faith is shown by good works or fruit. And so let me get to this section here and we'll read uh, verses 18 and 19. It says this, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So what's James saying there? He says, look, you can know it all you want, but even the enemy knows that God is God. Even though, even, even just knowing it in head knowledge isn't enough. Knowing it in your heart and living it out is what James is calling them to do. He says, look, you're a believer now. You're called to be different. You're called to live a different life. Stop being the same. Do something with your faith. It's an encouraging thing, but it's a hard thing. James drops a lot of hammers. Real belief shows up in our hands and feet, not just in our head and what we say. It's what we believe. The argument for faith being slowly, solely inside and not needing any external action is met with, my, with a faith that can be seen in what I do. It says the word show twice. In other words, works prove your faith, but they don't replace it. You can do all sorts of good things, but if Jesus isn't in your life and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, it won't matter in terms of getting to heaven. Look, you can help little old ladies across the street. You can recycle. You can give blood. You can do all these things that are good. But if you don't know Jesus, then he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because good works don't replace your faith. That's why in Hebrews eleven six it says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In verse 19, it sa he says that you believe in one God and you do well, but even the fallen angels believe God exists. They understand Jesus was God and that he's returning and that when he comes, he's going to judge. They believe and they even tremble and there's an understanding in a physical experience, but they're not saved. They have never surrendered their lives to Jesus. Emotion without surrender isn't worth anything. I know so many people who have walked an aisle, said a prayer, and, and it means nothing. It looks good. It looks great. But without a changed life, without that actually being lived out in a relationship with God, it's empty. It's hollow. I always, I, I, my, one of my favorite illustrations is, um, how many of you guys have seen Pirates of the Caribbean? Right. Okay. Disney movie. Good stuff. Johnny Depp. Great pirate. Um, the best illustration I can kind of give in that is that dead faith is just like what those pirates were going through. They're going through the motions. They're eating the apples, but they never taste it. It never satisfies. And so I, I just, I love that imagery because I think there's a lot of believers out there 
say, or a lot of people out there claiming that they're believers and they're disconnected from the power. They're disconnected from God and they're not really living it. And they don't know what it is. And so it's hard. And then I love, because now he's going to pull out some examples of what living faith looks like. It's great to see what dead faith looks like. It's really good to know, identify it. But it's so much more beneficial to be able to look at what faith really looks like. Living faith. And he pulls out two examples from the Old Testament. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. They know their uh, Torah. They know the book. And he says, and he takes two of the craziest examples, two people you would never ever put together in the entire world. Abraham and Rahab. Everybody, a lot of people know who Abraham is. You know, Abraham. I didn't I wasn't in children's ministry growing up in church, so I don't know the rest of the song, but I've heard it. Many sons. Yeah, okay. Um, that guy, right? who believed God, who trusted God so much, because he comes to Abraham at the age of, in his 70s, and he says, you're going to have a kid. Not only are you going to have a kid, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham, at 75 years old, probably thought, this guy's crazy. But he trusts him. He says, okay, God, I'm going to go with you on this. Now, it didn't come without its hurdles. He didn't come without some disbelief along the way and some alternate routes. But God was faithful. He said he was going to do something, and he did it. And so what does Abraham do? He has this son that God promised him. He says, you're going to have a son. And then what does God do? He says, now take that son, that thing that you've wanted your entire life, the thing that you've needed, the thing that you, you value so much, give it to me. And what does Abraham do? Okay, God. Abraham, Abraham had faith to look past the circumstances, to look past everything and say, all right, God, I'm just going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to listen to you. And I know you're going to provide. So he goes and he's probably has an awkward conversation with his son Isaac, who's probably like early teen, you know, saying, all right, we're going to go make an offering. And he's like, uh, what are we offering, Dad? Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And so then he starts tying him up and Isaac's like, what's going on? And then fortunately, you know, God does show up. You know, God's not into child sacrifice or anything like that. But what he really needed from Abraham, what he really wants from all of us is our heart. He says, give to me the one thing that you value so much and I'm going to use it. And so then we, we know the rest of the story. They all kind of get together and then, then there's a great offering and then the many, many sons and it's, an, it's a great story. Then we get to Rahab. Rahab, I, I, when I first read this passage back in GCBI, I was like, I don't get this. But one of the cool things about Rahab, you know, we, we see up there, she was a woman. She was a Canaanite from Jericho. Jericho, never to be rebuilt again. A prostitute. She owns uh, an inn. And so the spies come and they say to her, we're the spies. Can you hide us? This Canaanite woman, she knows of the God that they speak of. And she says, okay, I'll trust you. I'll trust your God. A woman that has no understanding of anything about what they do, just knows of this God and says, yes, I'll risk my life for you. I will hide you. And so he, she sends him the other way. And one of the cool things about uh, this uh, combining of the two 
is that we both see them in uh, the genealogy of David. They're both put in the same thing. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible um, idea. And so Galatians 3.6 says this, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And it, it makes it clear that it's by faith. So I, I, the in, incredible thing is that God was able to, to use these people and stack the deck against them. Use this 75-year-old man and his wife, who is barren, to create this line. To use this woman who was a prostitute to save his people. And so Matthew 5.16 says this, let your, shot, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And in verse 16, we see this for the third and final times here. He repeats himself. And it's another illustration. Guys, when, our, when we die, our soul leaves our body. We are more than just bones and flesh. There's a soul inside each and every one of us. And so when we die, it will either go one of two places. For the believer, um, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. For the unbeliever, the Bible says that your soul will be carried to a place of torment, a place where the worm never dies and the fire never ceases, eternally separated from God. And just like our soul can't be separated from our body except by death, so also faith and works can't be separated. They're two sides of the same coin. And so you can't separate faith and works. Uh, Luke 6, 46 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Jesus says to these hypocrites at the time, he says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I tell you to do? Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't want to live like what he calls you to do. We all know people in the church that have kind of turned us off, whether they're hypocrites or whatever it is. We all know those people. And God says, that's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to love me and love people. And so... Kind of to close out again, genuine faith just drives us to see people differently and wisdom differently. But here's the application for the believer. This week, live out your faith by reaching out to someone you've been pushing off. We all have people in our lives that we really kind of feel that nudge of God to say, maybe you should talk to that person. Maybe you should ask them about what's going on. And so my urge to you this week is to let the Spirit work. Let God work in you and live out your faith by reaching out to somebody, loving somebody despite anything that's going on, whether it's a disagreement or something you guys don't agree, whatever it is, reach out to this person. And so then that's really all I have. But my application for the non-believer is really focus this week. I feel like God is speaking to people and we just kind of push it off. We push it off, we push it off, and we say, yeah, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live life YOLO, and then eventually I'll find God down the road. Guys, don't put it off. He is calling us to reach people, and I think a lot of people will just try to push it away. Try to wait, because I've got things that I want to do. Uh, we've been going uh, th- through Second uh, Timothy with the youth, and I think a lot of us in this world... Even believers, if Jesus was to come back tomorrow, we'd kind of be disappointed because we still have more stuff we want to do. We have things in our lives that we want to see happen. And so my urging is that that could be tomorrow. Jesus can come back. He's going to come back in a thief, like a thief in the night. Stop pushing it off. 
If, if you're a believer in here and you've been walking, straying and you've been having difficulties, get back to him. Thanks again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God in his word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.